for the readings from uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 18 to 27, then from 57 to 62. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. On to verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Well, morning, everyone. Great to see you all this morning. Um, Let's pray, and I want to pray uh, the first part of Psalm 121, but a slight paraphrase. Lord, we lift our eyes to the hills. Where is our help from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what this reading today means and that you would help it to be real in each of our lives in the way that you would have done. So we give you our hearts now and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each of us. Amen. Great. Well, we're we're, uh, on number five, the final in our five-week series called Uncomfortable. And today, uh, Uncomfortable Church, I I, want to try and bring together some of the things that we've looked at over the last four weeks. Um, But for the sake of those who haven't been here or perhaps missed a week or forgotten, um, that's the series we've been working through, Uncomfortable Growth, Uncomfortable Relationships, Uncomfortable Generosity, Uncomfortable Witness, and today, Uncomfortable Church. Uh, And just by way of recap, I don't know if you remember some of these things that have been on the slide put in this still sort of diagram of growth. We reflected as a church on the fact that we're growing, which is a wonderful thing. Um, But growing and being in a lovely building with a lot of people is dangerous spiritually because we can become complacent. And so the challenge is if we're perhaps where that red cross is on the graph, what's going to happen? Are we just going to sit back and cruise and be comfortable as a church? And that will be the beginning of our decline. Or are we going to continue to seek more of God? And we thought about this word, didn't we? The most dangerous word that any of us can speak in our lives. I. The danger of building our life around ourselves, our preferences, what we want, rather than building our lives around the living God and what he wants. In the second week, we thought about uncomfortable relationships. And I put this diagram on the screen, six boxes. In a sense, it could represent six different relationships you have with maybe people in this church. Uh, Many of those relationships will be uncomfortable It's hard to love people who are not like yourself. It's hard to love people who have hurt you or disappointed you. But the call of the Christian life is to love and embrace uncomfortable relationships. And to really work hard at loving each other. 
And we thought a bit about pastoral care in a bigger church, that intentionality of stepping towards a person who is maybe hurting and sticking around and loving them. And we need to continue to grow to be better at that. We thought in the third week, didn't we, uncomfortable generosity, three areas of our life where we need to pray that we would become more spiritually uncomfortable. Generous in spirit, generous in time, and generous with our money and resources. And I told you a story, didn't I, of this dear lady who was so captivated by the love that God had for her that she decided when she died that she wanted to give her home as a legacy to her church and say, use this money to further the kingdom of God. What a vision from a lady who was very old, but she wanted to continue to give long after her death. And I left that story with us to maybe inspire us to think about what is it we're going to leave behind when we die? It may be money, it may be something else, but a challenge nonetheless. Then last week, Uncomfortable Witness, where I asked the question, do you as an individual, do we as a church want to be a cruise ship where it's just comfortable and we just enjoy being here? Or do we want to be a lifeboat, a church that exists for the purpose of people in our world who don't know the living God and don't know just how much he loves each one of them and how much joy will fill our life when we give our life to Christ. And I gave us a little picture that all over our world, in a sense, there is Satan's fingerprints. The destroyer, the accuser, the one who wants to steal joy and see ruined and broken lives. Fingerprints of Satan all over the world. And the challenge of the church is to stamp God's footprint over the top of all those fingerprints. And to say to a world that is utterly godless, there is a God. There is a God and he loves you and he created you for a purpose. And so as we come to Uncomfortable Church this week, really the whole of this morning is going to be focused on those two words. And I wonder as you just look at those two words, what are you thinking? Are those words that are kind of pretty safe? You could read them in a a ladybird book of the Bible to a small child. Hey, come and follow me. Or for you, are those words utterly radical? Are they words that actually deeply unsettle you? It's just two words, and I've spent many, many hours over the last few months thinking and reflecting on these two words, and they've unsettled me hugely. Because when we understand what these words mean, it changes everything. It will turn your life on its head when you grasp what these two words mean. And I asked us this question at the end of the first week. Is Long Crendon Baptist Church meeting me where I'm at? Or is this church meeting Jesus Christ where he is at? And that is the crucial question we ask, particularly at this stage in the life of the church, where there's so much about this church that's wonderful and strong, but we've got an amazing opportunity ahead to seek the living God and ask what he wants to do here. Well, is it about what he wants to do to meet us where we're at? Or is it us meeting him where he is at? And I know that being uncomfortable, living the life of Jesus, does feel dangerous it does make us uncomfortable but here's something i've reflected on much in recent weeks i think that being spiritually comfortable is way more dangerous it's bad for us yes it's frightening to take the words of jesus come follow me and take them seriously it's frightening but it's way more dangerous just to sit back and be comfortable because it's equivalent to spiritual suicide And I don't think we can afford as a church to be comfortable. But of course, as we've looked in this series, what it means for each one of us to be uncomfortable will mean very, very different things. That's why there's been a lot of variety in the themes that we've looked at through this series. Yes, for some here, it may be in a spiritual sense, like you are sitting in a deck chair under... A, a, a palm tree on an island and God just wants to get hold of you and wake you up spiritually and say come on there's more to life than comfort and that would be true for some here it may be that some here God just wants to get hold of your heart and radically re-change the way that you think the way that you're living your life and that might require massive changes in lifestyle or in priorities it's like a major shake up but equally there may be some here who Life is actually pretty uncomfortable already because of something you're going through. And actually what it looks like for you to be uncomfortable is not the kind of charge forward with Jesus to conquer some great mountain. 
It may just be to stand where you are in the rain and Jesus just puts an arm around you and says, I'll stand here with you. And I'm not asking you to do anything, but to be uncomfortable means tomorrow morning when you wake up, just keep trusting me. And you see, uncomfortable can mean so many different things to so many different people in this room. And the challenge for us is not to worry about the person sitting next to us. How will they respond? What's their uncomfortable? The challenge is what's your uncomfortable? And what is God calling you to do in response? Maybe for some here it's a fear that you've never surrendered to God, not properly. And he just says, today, just give it to me. Surrender that fear because my love can drive out that fear. And so the question I want to ask each of you is, what is God saying to you this morning about where he wants you to be uncomfortable? It might be to go out and do great things. It might just be to stand where you're standing and keep standing. But what is your uncomfortable? Let's step back. Let's go back to week one. We thought a little bit about what the church is, okay? The church is not this building. It's not what we do on Sunday. The church is bigger than that. And we recall this idea that the church is not our church, it's God's church. And there are two realities I'd love us to think about. The purpose of the church is firstly to display the glory of God in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, it's a lot, bit of a mouthful. What's he saying? He's saying there is a spiritual realm. This world is not just a world of 2D, as it were. Not just a world of what I can see and touch and sense and control. There's a spiritual realm. And the purpose of the church is to declare the glory of God in this spiritual realm, which means what we do as individuals and how we behave as a church doesn't just affect what you see, feel, and can understand, but it affects things in ways that you can't even see. There's a spiritual realm. And the purpose of the church, in part, is to declare the glory of God in the heavenly realms. And it's mind-blowing, because you can't get your head around it, right? But then the purpose of the church also is to declare the glory of God in the earthly realms. Peter, who we're going to come to at the end of this morning, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote one of the two letters of Peter. And he says this, writing to Christians who are scattered all over the world, facing persecution. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In other words, to, to stop living life your own way. And instead live such good lives among the pagans, people who don't know God, that though they accuse you of doing wrong... The Christians were hated in the first century. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So you see the purpose of the church is to declare the glory of God in the spiritual realms and to declare the glory of God in the heavenly realms. And that's why last week in Uncomfortable Witness, I said at the end of the day, take that word evangelism or witness, they're difficult words. At the end of the day, what does it mean? It means the purpose of our church is to help people to see Jesus. To see him in all his glory. And for some people that's an extraordinary thought because Jesus is just a swear word. But the purpose of the church is for people to see Jesus for who he really is. And why do they need to see him for who he is? Because we read in Romans chapter 1, although they knew God, they didn't glorify God as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, that's the world that we live in. We live in a world where people don't honour and glorify God as God. Where people set up false gods and worship them. Not necessarily little idols we stick in a house, but money, career, success, family, education, comfort, experiences. All good things, but we set them up to be God. And this verse says that. Rather than glorifying the living God as God, we worship other things. And so the massive challenge we have as a church is to ask ourselves the question, who's changing whom? Are we, the church, changing the world and painting a vision of a world that is bigger and better than anything that this world can offer? Or is the world changing us, making us comfortable? Who's changing whom? I wonder if you could turn, please, to Luke chapter 9 to that passage that was read to us earlier. I'm going to read from verse 18. Uh, We 
are in a place called Caesarea Philippi. We don't know that from Luke's gospel, but in Mark's gospel, the same account, we're in this place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is on the edge of, on the border between Israel and Syria. It's the equivalent of the Golan Heights today. It was a place, Caesarea Philippi, where Herod built a shrine to honor Emperor Augustus. It was a place where there was all sorts of false worship, but the central false worship in Caesarea Philippi was a monument, a statue to the Greek god Pan. And so this was a place where people worshipped, not the living god as god, but some other god, some false god. In this place, in a sense it could be like modern day Las Vegas, the city of pleasure, or the city of sin as some people like to laugh and call it. It could be like Soho at night in London, under the dark lights where no one's watching. But Caesarea Philippi could equally be our high street, 10 meters that way. A place where people just worship anything other than the living God. Worship good things, but not God things. And so actually, this passage and what Jesus says here is really significant because he could just be speaking those words to us today here in 2019. Come with me to verse 18. Once Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And then comes the killer question. And this is a killer question for Peter and it's a killer question for you and for me this morning. All right. Who do you say I am? That is the most important question that Jesus Christ could ask any one of us. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, God's Messiah. Messiah is the Jewish name for the Greek name Christ, but Messiah and Christ mean king. So Peter here is acknowledging that this Jesus is king. But we know from the wider context, he doesn't yet understand what kind of a king. He slightly missed the point. Well, what does it look like to follow this king? Come down to verse 23. These words will shake your world, turn your life upside down, and challenge you to the very core of who you are. Then he said to all of them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Tell me, what is comfortable about that? What is comfortable about that? But the really significant thing is not just these words, but it's where Jesus chose to take Peter to speak these words. He chose to take him to a place that was known to be godless. Because it was in this godless place where people worshipped things that weren't God, that he wanted to say to Peter, who are you going to worship? And then in the wider context of what's going on here, we see something really significant. Because when the Gospels are written, they weren't just written as a random account of stories. They were ordered in a particular reason. Why is what comes next? Why does what comes next come next? Let's have a look. Just after Jesus speaks these challenging words, what is the story that we see? It's the story of the transfiguration where Jesus is revealed in all his glory. How are you going to follow Jesus? Deny self, pick up your cross and follow When you've not been captivated by this man Christ. How do you do it? Which is why the very next story we read, verse 28. After eight days, Jesus said this to his... And he took Peter, James and John with him up onto a mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, they were prophets who pointed the way to him. Appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus friends if we're going to live an uncomfortable life and follow this man Jesus we've got to be captivated overwhelmed with the glory of God and that's why that story comes where it comes but then notice what happens just after the glory of God is revealed come down to verse 38 
The very next story is a story about spiritual opposition. Here it's in the context of a man who cries out and says, Teacher, verse 38, I beg you to look at my son, for he's only a child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. Spiritual opposition, which to this young boy is demon possession. Then look at the next story. Internal opposition. You have the disciples who've just been challenged about denying self, picking up their cross and following Jesus. And what do you see here? It's remarkable. They're squabbling over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They've missed the point. Yes, Jesus, you're king, but I haven't grasped what kind of a king. Notice verse 46. It's astonishing. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Following Jesus isn't about us being great. It's about following the one who is great. They've missed the point. And then notice the next story, external opposition. Verse 53. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. It's astonishing where Jesus takes Peter to speak these words. It's astonishing how provocative and unsettling and uncomfortable Peter would have felt. And then it's astonishing that in the stories that follow, we see the glory of Jesus revealed because that is what the disciples need to be captivated by his love. But then what follows is spiritual opposition, internal opposition, external opposition. In other words, if you truly want to follow Jesus and you hear this provocative call to follow You need to be captivated first with the glory of God. But you need to know second that you're entering into a spiritual battle. Because the devil doesn't want you to follow Jesus. He doesn't want you to honor Jesus. He doesn't want you to love Jesus. He hates Jesus. And if you love Jesus, he'll hate you. And the more you love Jesus, the more he'll hate you. And the more he'll come after you. That is why this story is arranged as it is. But then notice the next story which was read. If you could please jump forward to verse 57. Jesus wants to drive the point home in case we've missed the point. So he says, verse 57, as they were walking along the road, another man comes and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And I'm sure this man, his heart was in the right place. I want to follow you, he says. But then Jesus says to him, foxes have dens. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you really want to follow me? Because my friend is going to be really uncomfortable. I'm not going to have a home to live in. He's not saying that's literally what's going to happen to every person who follows him. He's saying, in the proverbial sense, are you really prepared to follow me? Because it might cost you an awful lot. And this man hadn't counted the cost. We know nothing more about what happened. But as I read this, I imagine him just walking away with his head held low. I'll follow you, Jesus. Well, I'm not sure I will, actually. It's going to cost me something. Then notice another man comes, verse 59. Jesus says to him, follow me. And what's he reply? Lord, first let me go and bury my father. In other words, Lord, I'll follow you, but I've got a few priorities to attend to first. When I've got my house in order, my finances in order, when this busy phase of my life is over, then I'll be ready and I'll really follow you. Jesus is gone. Missed him. And then verse 60, Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then in verse 61, still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. It's the sense of, Lord, I'll follow you, but only on my terms. Tell me where we're going. Tell me how much it's going to cost me. Reassure me I'm going to be okay. Give me a map. Make sure I've got good insurance policy in place. Then when I'm comfortable, I'll follow you. It's remarkable, isn't it? And we'll come to that a little later on. This week, I read a story of this man. I wouldn't suspect anyone would know who he is. I had no idea who he was. But this man is called Hernan Cortez. What a great name. He was a Spanish explorer. And in 1519, he landed on the eastern shore of New Mexico. He was there with 11 ships, 500 soldiers, 200 sailors. He lands on the beach. They all unload on this land that no one had yet conquered. No one knew what was in this land. No one knew what was ahead. 
And they got out onto the seashore and the men were both seasick but also terrified. Who lives here? What are we going to meet? Where are we going? What are we going to do next? And then Hernan Cortez spoke three really famous words. Burn the ships. So he knew that the only way for his men to be fully in and full on in the mission was for them not to have a way to go home again. Burn the ships because we're not going home. We're fully committed to this mission. And the ships were burned. And the men then couldn't look back. So what did they do? They looked forward. In a sense, when he said burn the ships, it was like he was saying, come follow me. Follow me into the unknown. Follow me where it's dangerous. Follow me where we're going to be uncomfortable. And the only way to truly follow is, it, as it were, to burn the ships. Not to say, I'll follow you, but I'm just going to keep a foot here because it's comfortable. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus never said following him was comfortable. He never said that being a Christian would be easy. It might well make your life harder. It's never going to be a life free from suffering. It's never going to be a life where you and I can be comfortable in this world. We're always going to feel, as we read on the screen earlier, as Peter spoke, you'll feel like an alien and a stranger in this world. Why? Because you'll be living a different life. You'll be following Jesus. And most of the world don't follow Jesus. It will be uncomfortable. But the point is, for each of us, there will be a different uncomfortable. And God may be saying to you, come on. Pick up that rucksack. We're going to go up a massive mountain. And he's just stirring you to wake up spiritually. But he may be saying to some of you, you're uncomfortable just to get out of bed tomorrow morning and just to cling to me as I cling to you and trust me. But the remarkable thing about going on a journey with anyone is there's always a first step, isn't there? I walk in the mountains a lot. I love it. But when I walk in the mountains, I look up to the top of the mountains and I can't even see it because it's way too high. It's covered in mist. It's probably raining up there. It's dark. And when you're at the bottom, you think, how am I ever going to get to the top? But the way you get to the top is just to step one step forward and just to keep doing that. And eventually you get to the top of the mountain. And it's astonishing. What is your uncomfortable? And what would it look like for you to take just one step in that direction today? As we bring this series to a close, let me give you four convictions that I've been praying through for each of us, for my own heart, for each of your hearts, uh, for many hours over the last few weeks. Four convictions that I hope will help us not just pull together this series, but actually step forward in faith now as a church. Here's the first one. I think all of us, and particularly some of us, need to learn to stop. We need to learn to stop because we know that we're overscheduled, overcommitted. Life is too frantic, it's too full. And to go back to the first week, we don't actually have the time to just stop and go, why am I doing what I'm doing in the way that I'm doing it? And it's just easier just to keep going. Some of us need to stop. That might mean stopping something completely. It may mean doing something very different. It may mean different priorities. But the biggest thing for all of this is surrendering that sense of guilt that you might have. I'm going to let someone down if I stop. The company will fall apart if I stop. There's going to be more hurting people who aren't going to be looked after by me if I stop. And actually this challenge from the living God to reassess our priorities and slow down so that we can hear from God. We're all what I would call professional rationalizers. We kind of know we need to. But we can think of any number of excuses why we won't. And maybe for some people here, you just need to stop. Because actually in the busyness of life, you can't hear the voice of God. Because there's no quiet. We talk about wanting to follow God. But we're so busy talking. Or running around that we can't even hear his voice. And we just run past him and miss everything he wants to do. I was challenged myself by our verse for the year from a couple of years ago, Romans 12, verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It's great to be active, to be busy, both in life, in family, in the church. But here are two reflections of when it's very dangerous to be busy. 
It's dangerous to be busy if our service of God ends up taking over our enjoyment of him. So busy serving him that I never stop to enjoy him. That's why I hope the recent series that some of you worked through uh, in the home groups has been helpful. Enjoying God. Maybe you just need to slow down to enjoy him. But the other reason we need to slow down, I really feel convicted of this one, is that we can stop and really pray as a church. Not just the sort of little prayers that we all ought to pray at the start of each day. But stop that we might see the glory of God and pray fervent prayers, heartfelt prayers. Prayers that stir our soul and move us. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle, who was a well-known bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century. He said this of the church, and I think nothing's really changed for us corporately. I'm not wanting to make judgment on an individual heart. He said, I worry about people's prayer lives. They don't really seem to want very much from God. They seem to have little to confess, little to ask for, little to thank God for. I'm convinced that as a church we need to stop and seek God and see him in his glory. Because we want to respond to the words of Jesus when he speaks to Peter. Pick up your cross and follow me. But we mustn't forget the story that follows. They saw Jesus in his glory. And if we stop, Jesus will get bigger to us. We will get smaller. And then we will see where we need to go as a church. I think that could have implications for Sunday. Corporate prayer as we gather as the body of Christ. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how that, what that looks like in terms of how we structure our services. But I think it would be really important to have more time set aside as a family to seek God in prayer. I think it would be wonderful, and I think we need to talk about this at the end of a service, having more space to reflect, to slow down, to hear from God, to share encouragements of what God's doing in our life. And we'll do that over lunch. But why not let's have a time in our service to do that? I don't know exactly what the answer is, but that's a conviction I'm really convinced of. And friends, as we listen to Jesus who says, follow me, and following me in part means stopping. Let's remember this, that God's grace is sufficient. Because the thing that will stop any of us from stopping is fear of people and letting people down. And God's grace is sufficient. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let's not put a big yoke and a big burden around each other's necks. Let's stop and know that his grace is sufficient. Second one, and we particularly thought about this in the second week, we need to learn to love each other deeply. I'm not suggesting for a moment that this doesn't happen in the church. I think this church is really good at that. But the great danger of a church that's good at something is it becomes complacent of what it's good at. And I know that there are people who feel they have been fallen through the cracks because we're bigger and so we need to keep intentionally loving each other i thought this week a bit about that word that's used 14 times in the new testament by the apostle paul it's a word fellowship and sometimes we think of fellowship as kind of like a nice cozy uh, cuddle a a cozy huddle that's not a word is it a cozy cuddle a group of people who just come together on a sunday and it's just nice there's a dynamism to the word fellowship in the bible and it really speaks of two things It speaks about a commitment, a mutual commitment to one another as a family. And that's uncomfortable. Why? Because a family like this will be imperfect. Why will it be imperfect? Because it's full of imperfect people. As one slightly cheeky pastor once said, the second you think you found the perfect church, you'll ruin it when you walk through the door. Isn't that true? But fellowship is about committing to awkward people. Committing to a family and loving people, even when it costs us. But fellowship is also commitment to the shared responsibility in a task. When we read in the New Testament of the believers came together, that commitment to a shared task. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a pastor up in Liverpool. He's so refreshing to talk to. He's got such a joy and love for the Lord. And he said this to me. We were talking about some revitalization stuff. And he said this. Listen, the church that will change your life is the church that challenges you to grow. Comfortable churches you don't grow in because they're comfortable. 
But the church that will change your life is the church that challenges you to grow. And one of the areas that we all can grow in is that love for each other. When it's costly. And so again, when Jesus says, come follow me. As we're called to love each other deeply, we need to remember that his grace is essential. Because you can't love me when I'm difficult. And I can't love you when you're difficult. But for the grace of God. But we can love each other like this when the grace of God is at work in us. Here's the third conviction. We need to prioritize uncomfortable mission. And of course, that doesn't for a second mean that there's some trade-off between being missional or being a church that loves and looks after each other pastorally. Let's not pit these two things against each other. But let me ask you a question. What is it in life that distresses you the most? What is it that gets you most animated? Is it having that financial security? Is it the schools your children go to? Is it that beautiful garden that's so difficult to keep beautiful because one day it's 31 degrees and the plants are burning, the next day there's a flood in the garden? It's a nightmare. Is it that building development near your home that spoils the view? All legitimate concerns, but are these the things that most move you? Or are you more moved by people who don't know Christ? Have you ever got emotional seeing someone ride a bike? I suspect not. I never have before, until this morning. I started crying when I left my house this morning because I saw a neighbor riding a bike. You go, what's wrong with you? You've had too much sun yesterday. I was moved to tears because I know this neighbor of mine, and I spoke to him once about Jesus. And he said to me, it's interesting, I'm just too busy. And this morning, he was out riding a bike, and I was moved to tears because he doesn't know Christ. And he doesn't know how much Christ loves him. And he's too busy for Jesus. But he's not too busy to go on a bike ride. Some here, you know that you don't know Christ. It's wonderful having you here. Jesus Christ is not a swear word. Jesus Christ is not some man who was irrelevant 2,000 years ago. He's the life changer. He's the creator of the cosmos. And he will change your life if you surrender to him. He will fill you with his spirit and give you a joy that you cannot find in this world anywhere else. You can't. That's why we prioritize uncomfortable mission. Because when people encounter the living God, it turns their life upside down. And there are people here for whom you haven't encountered him. And I just want to ask you, why will you surrender everything to him? And maybe that means being prepared as a church to change some stuff. There's one thing in the church that should never change, ever. It's the gospel. Everything else in the church should we should be prepared to change if it helps us reach out to people who don't know Christ and help us to love each other more. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's an awful lot in our lives where we'd say, I would never change that. And we take something that's good and we make it a gospel thing. There's one thing that never changes, Jesus and the gospel. But we've got to be prepared to change anything else. And I'm not saying we should change anything else, but maybe we should change things. And if we are to change things, ask yourself this question. Is this change going to help us to love God more and to reach people who don't know Christ? And if it's a change that makes us uncomfortable, it's got to be worth it. It's got to be. Follow me, Jesus says. As you prioritize uncomfortable mission. And again, let's remember that it's God's grace that will empower us. Only God's grace that will empower us. And then finally, and this is probably the biggest conviction. I think as a church, we need to help each other to learn to bow before the king. You might have noticed that the first conviction and the final conviction, in a sense, are foundations for the two middle ones that require more action. Stopping and praying. It's still an action. Uncomfortable mission is an action. Loving, sorry, loving each other deeply is an action. Uncomfortable mission is an action. But the first and the fourth are less about what we do and more about the posture of our heart. And we need to learn to bow before the king because otherwise what will happen is what I call devil's snatch. He'll snatch away a seed that's been sown in this series or indeed any day the gospel's preached. And we'll say that was nice, 
but then we'll just get back to the routine of tomorrow. Friends, I'm convinced we all need to search our hearts and put away whatever it is in our hearts and our minds that where we've got a convenient view of God. I'll believe and follow God when he fits my patterns, when he agrees with me, when he never disturbs my life. That's the God I'll follow. And that is the God that the three people in our passage wanted to follow. And when Jesus said, that's not what it means to follow me, they ended up being left behind. Let's put away our convenient idea of God and let's surrender everything. If anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for me in the gospel, you will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Let's put away our convenient idea of God. Let's pray that we would be totally surrendered. And then as we were challenged last week, let us keep in step with the Spirit of God. Listen to the words of Jim Packer, a very well-known Canadian, English-born pastor and theologian. He said this, Many churches run in grooves, and grooves soon turn into graves. The Holy Spirit is not a sentimentalist. He is a change agent. Change for change's sake is fidgeting. Change that removes his obstacles of what God is doing leads to blessing. Where are we putting obstacles in the way of what God wants to do here? Where am I an obstacle to what God wants to do here? Where are you an obstacle? Because we need to get rid of these things and let the Spirit of God lead us forward as a church. Because if we do that, this is what will happen. Each one of us will come to know God more deeply. And we'll come to experience the power of God more powerfully. So the big question for all of us is how hungry are we for God? I came across a verse this morning that I've never really acknowledged before. Psalm 81 verse 10 says this. I am the living God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. One of my little nieces was with us yesterday just a few weeks old if you have a spoon with some baby food on it and you try and put it in her mouth while her mouth is closed she won't eat and it goes all over her face and all over you and all over everything else but when she opens up her mouth wide and you put what's on the spoon in her mouth she swallows it and she grows for you as an individual and for us as a church how wide open is your mouth that you can eat what God has for you He wants to fill us. And here's the thing, and this is my heart and I pray it's your heart. I want to put away a convenient idea of God. I want to surrender everything. I want to keep in step with his spirit. I want to know God more deeply and experience him in a more powerful way. And yet here's the thing, fear paralyzes me sometimes. And I suspect fear paralyzes you. And as soon as God takes me to an uncomfortable place, what do I do? I just want to put on the brakes. Lord, I want more of you until I'm uncomfortable. And then hold up, whoa, I can't go there. We've got to stop putting on the brakes. Jim Packer, I quoted earlier, says, Too many of the evangelical world are what I would call God's frozen people. (laughs) They want to follow Jesus, but when the cost is too great, they just put on the brakes and say, hang on a minute. And so as I close, I want to take you back to Luke chapter 9. I wonder if you could turn to it. But actually, rather than chapter 9, flick back to chapter 5, because there's a choice before all of us, friends. There's a choice now. Do we want to be a comfortable church, or do we want to be an uncomfortable church? And I want to show you two passages, which you hold in contrast. Chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel, verse 10 and 11. Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Are we prepared to surrender everything and follow him? Please pray and help me to do that because that's what I want so much. And I pray that that's what you want. But the alternative, flick forward to Luke chapter 22. Because this same Peter who was called here on the beach and then was issued that challenge in chapter 9 is the Peter we read of in Luke chapter 22. 
come to verse 33. Simon Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. See, his heart wants to do it. And then Jesus speaks these words to him. I tell you, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. Then Jesus is arrested. And then you read the words in verse 54. And these are chilling. Peter followed at a distance. Will we leave everything and follow him? Or will we just follow at a distance? Because the world, maybe our heart says, don't get too involved. It will cost you too much. Don't be too loyal. You get branded. Don't be too provocative. Settle for comfort. But when Jesus then speaks to him, verse 60, second half, and says, as he was speaking, the cock crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Imagine if that was you, and the Lord turned and looked at you. And then you, or Peter, remember the words that Jesus spoke, before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. Look at what happens next. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And that's why there's a choice before all of us as a church. To be comfortable or to be uncomfortable. And that's why Jesus matters so much. Because it's only his perfect love. The perfect love that took him to the cross to surrender absolutely everything for you and for me. It's only that love that can banish our fears. And as we bow before the king, as we stop and learn to pray fervent prayers then by his grace he will help us to love each other and love our world as he would have us and then we'll be more effective in mission and we'll truly see a changed world and so what do we need Lord friends as we bow the knee before the king yet again we need his grace because it's only his grace that can transform our hearts How hungry are you for God? Open wide your mouth, God says, and I will fill it. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we we talked about stopping, so we're just going to take a moment to be still. As the Spirit of God ministers to each one of us. Living God, would you touch each of our hearts, I pray, and show us where you want us to be uncomfortable. If it's to get off the deck chair and go and do something, please take away our fears that we might be stirred to action. If it's to slow right down and stop, that we might, maybe for the first time in years, enjoy you and see your glory. Please help us to stop. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you fill us with your power? Would you fill us with your love? Would you fill us with your joy? Would you change us? Father, for those who are here who have never met Jesus, who've never bowed the knee before him. Thank you that you made each of us and you love us all. You love us if we love you and you love us if we hate you. You are a God of love and you long to pour your love into each of our hearts. So I pray, Father, for any who are here who've never accepted your love, who don't know the living God, I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes to encounter Jesus. see how much it costs you to send your son to die on that cross that we might be forgiven that our guilt and shame might be removed that we might enjoy new life in Christ Father please would you open our mouth wide that you might fill it that you might fill us And we pray for wisdom going forward as a church, Lord. We are a big church and you have done amazing things here. And we thank you that that is your work. 
Please show us as individuals how you want us to play a part in serving you and building your kingdom, whether it's here in this church or in our workplaces or serving you overseas or just in the ordinary day-to-day of life. Help us, Lord, to follow you. And for those of us who hear that call to follow but we're paralyzed by fear, help us in this moment to surrender everything and just take that first step. Because on that beach when you called the first disciples, they were just getting on with their ordinary lives, mending their nets. And you said, come, follow me. And they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know what it was going to cost them. But you stirred their hearts and they took that first step. And that Peter who took his first step was later the one who said, I will follow you and even go to my death to follow you. And yet moments later, denied that he even knew you. And yet in your lavish grace... You forgave him. And later Peter confessed Christ. And it was on that confession of Christ that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Thank you, Lord, that you use us even when we're fearful. Even when we don't surrender, you use us to further your kingdom. And we pray in this moment, Lord, that you would touch each of our hearts. Show us where we need to be uncomfortable and help us to take that first step. Thank you that where there is perfect love, only the love that God can give, there is no fear because perfect love drives out fear. And so we pray, Lord, that the love of the Father And the love of the Son and the love of the Holy Spirit would be with us all, transform our hearts and be with us evermore as we step forward to choose to be an uncomfortable church. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if you could put the Lord's Prayer, please, on the screen. And let's stand and let's, first of all, read these words and then let's pray them together. If you feel that you can pray these words in your heart. Should we stand together? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.